and welcome to Pod Academy. This podcast is drawn from a lecture by journalist Martin Bright on truth and lies, looking at the period leading up to the Iraq War in 2003. It's part of a series of lectures on thinking without borders, put on by IF, the Free University in London, in summer 2017. I am by sort of instinct and inclination of journalist rather than an academic. I'm hoping that this evening uh, I can give you an introduction to just one particular story, one very tiny strand of the story of the Iraq war to illustrate truth, fake news, uh, some of the things that are very much in our minds at the moment. Um, And began by thinking about some of the rules of, of journalism, um, I mean, there are, there are certain rules that you abide by, like never befriend a politician, um, never befriend someone in the public relations industry, never betray a source, and never use PowerPoint. <laughs> Probably the most important rule of all. So I'm already breaking one of those rules. Hope I've never betrayed a source. And what I wanted to say as well is that I'm no expert on the Iraq war. I wouldn't even really pretend to be an expert on journalism, although I have taught journalism. I want to look at a particular story that you may or may not have heard about, which I think plays its part in the history of the Iraq war. It is, I mean, as a journalist, I felt I was participating in writing the first draft of history. It is a I mean, this is going to be a slightly self-serving lecture, I have to say. I mean, it's a story that I wrote when I was working for The Observer in, in 2003. Um, and it's a story that's largely left out of the reports. It's not in the Chilcot report. It wasn't in the Hutton inquiry. Uh, it's, it's, it was a big news story at the time, but it's largely become, I'd say, even less than a footnote in history. And it is story of this woman, Catherine Gunn. And Catherine was working in 2003 at GCHQ, the Government Communications Headquarters, the spying surveillance uh, headquarters, part of the, I the, I guess, in most people's minds, the third arm of the intelligence services, MI6, the Foreign Intelligence Service, MI5, the Internal Intelligence Service, GCHQ, surveillance. And uh, Catherine was a translator. She was a Mandarin speaker. She'd been born in Taiwan. And so she was a fluent Mandarin speaker. And she was working as a translator. So at GCHQ, you you have code breakers and you have translators. And so she spent her days there listening to reports from, well, listening to China, listening to the government, anything that we were using to spy on, uh, on China. She was, she was there, sitting there every day listening. And then her job was to, well, to decide what was interesting. I mean, quite, quite an intriguing job for a young woman. It was, you know, she would just listen to, listen to Chinese broadcasts, listen to Chinese, uh, not, not just broadcasts, but if we were bugging people in China, uh, she would listen and she would report to her managers what she felt was interesting. She would translate and she would report. 
and she was happy in her job. She thought it was a she was, thought it was a great job. She enjoyed it. She felt that she was she was working for the good of the country. She was a patriot. She felt um, she didn't think there was anything wrong with spying. She thought it was in the national interest, and she was a good employee. She was she was trusted and respected, but she became increasingly worried about the Iraq War, the build-up to the conflict in Iraq. She was, she was sceptical. She felt that it was not something she was necessarily happy was, was going on. She didn't really feel that British intelligence services should be used in any way to, um, to further the war aims of the, of the government, such as they were. And so one day she was sitting, working, translating... And she received a memo from the National Security Agency in the United States. Now, subsequently, the National Security Agency and GCHQ have become much more high-profile institutions since the leaks of Edward Snowden. We know a lot more about what they can, about what they can tap into than we did at the time. But there's always been a very close relationship between the NSA and GCHQ. Uh, they've always worked hand-in-hand. Hand. And... In January 2003, we're looking at a time when there's, there's already a British naval task force in the Gulf. We're building towards war, but if you try to imagine yourself back in those times, I don't know how many people in this room remember it, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion, or we were being told it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we were going to be going to war. There were still negotiations going on in the United Nations, and we were being told by Tony Blair and George Bush at the time that should Saddam Hussein uh, give up his weapons of mass destruction, then we would, there would be no need to go to war. But it was a time of high tension. There were inspectors at the time, people may remember, in Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction. They were finding some difficulty in tracing them. And such was the tension within GCHQ itself that on the 24th of January 2003 a memo was sent out to GCHQ staff, all GCHQ staff including Catherine Gunn reassuring them that they would not be asked to do anything unlawful which if you think about it is quite an interesting thing to do because you you might expect that to be the case why would they have to reassure people about that if when you go and work in an organisation like that one should possibly assume that you're not going to be doing anything unlawful anyway this memo went out it was felt, felt necessary what's happening at the time in the States is there's a continuing hardening up of the documents that are being fed to the US government about what's happening in Iraq hardening up of um, reports about the weapons that, that Saddam is supposed to have um, Rather inconveniently, on the 27th of January 2003, Hans Blix is is one of the main weapons inspectors, and his team, they state that Iraq has no nuclear capacity and that Iraq has been cooperative. And the French Prime Minister, sorry, the French Foreign Minister Dominique de Villepin is saying that France will not contemplate war while inspections can continue. So it's, it's getting a little bit tricky for those who wish to go to who wish to go to war. 
What we also know at this point is that there's going to be a presentation to the United Nations by Colin Powell to argue that Iraq is in breach of, in breach of its um, international um, commitments. So, what happens is this. As this is all happening, this memo arrives in Catherine Gunn's inbox. So it comes from the rather fantastically named Frank Koza, who um, is, you know, sounds for all the world like a kind of Hollywood villain. So Frank Koza, who's in charge of regional targets within the <coughs> NSA, sends this just after midnight on January the 31st. All. As you've likely heard by now, the agency is mounting a surge particularly directed at the UN Security Council members, minus the US and Great Britain, of course, for insights as to how the membership is reacting to the ongoing debate regarding Iraq, plans to vote on any related resolutions, what related policies, negotiating positions they may be considering, alliances, dependencies, etc. The whole gamut of information that could give U.S. policymakers an edge in obtaining results favorable to U.S. goals or to head off surprises. In regional targets, that means a QRC surge effort to revive, create efforts against the U.N. Security Council members, Angola, Cameroon, Chile, Bulgaria, and Guinea, as well as extra focus on Pakistan-U.N. matters. We've also asked all regional targets of particular interest to emphasize and make sure they pay attention to existing non-Security Council, UN-related, and domestic comms for anything useful related to the Security Council deliberations, debates, votes. We have a lot of special UN-related diplomatic coverage, various UN delegations from countries not sitting on the Security Council right now, that can contribute related perspectives, insights, whatever. We recognize that we can't afford to ignore this possible source. We'd appreciate your support in getting the word to your analysts who might have similar, more indirect access to valuable information from accesses in your product lines. I suspect that you'll be hearing more along these lines in formal channels, especially as this effort will probably peak, at least for this specific focus, in the middle of next week, following the Secretary of State Colin Powell's presentation to the Security Council. Thanks for your help were trying to imagine what effect this must have had on Catherine as she, as she read it. As you've likely heard by now, the agency is mounting a surge, particularly directed at the UN Security Council, dependencies, etc., the whole gamut of information that could give US policymakers an edge in obtaining results favourable to US goals to head off surprises. And it goes on, and it's very specific about what is going to happen, how this targeting is going to uh, take place, which country is going to be targeted, and it ends. We appreciate your support in getting the word to your analysts who might have similar, more indirect access to valuable information from accesses in your product lines. I suspect you'll be hearing more along these lines in formal channels, especially as this effort will probably peak, at least for this specific focus, in the middle of next week following the Secretary of State Colin Powell's presentation to the UN Security Council. Thanks for your help. Now, some of this is quite technical. Some of it is quite, quite a lot of jargon there. Product lines are chunks of intelligence. Product is intelligence. So for Catherine, her product lines would have been the information that she was gleaning from the, from the Chinese. That would be her product line. So that, that's where she'd be asked to, to be looking. 
with GCHQ, it's all about surveillance intelligence rather than uh, face-to-face sources, which would be the job of MI6 rather than, rather than GCHQ. And you could argue that, I mean, as a number of people on the American right argued, that this was just perfectly normal practice. That, you know, what do you expect? I guess my job as a journalist is always to, or, or was, when I was you know, working on, in frontline journalism, is always to ask the question, well, if people think that something always happens, if the people take the kind of cynical line, you always have to say, yes, but is it, is it right? It may happen. Who benefits? Should, should it happen? Who benefits? Yeah, so in this context, it is in fact illegal under international law to spy on the United Nations. But you might come to the conclusion that the one, one of the main reasons that America lobbied very hard to have the United Nations building cited in New York was precisely to make it as easy as possible to spy on it. I mean, there couldn't be a, there couldn't be a more useful place to spy on, to be honest. But what offended Catherine was the fact that our intelligence services were being asked to do this on behalf of America. And in particular, she was offended by this idea that they were being asked to help obtain an edge in obtaining results favourable to US goals. There's no talk of British goals. This is US goals. And what are those goals? Are those goals peace? (laughs) Or are those goals the rush to war? Now, she, at this point, she assumed that everybody in GCHQ who received this memo, so she's got a junior translator of Mandarin, and she receives this. So there's a lot of people who received this memo within GCHQ, and I think she assumed, particularly as she'd been assured previously that they wouldn't be asked to do anything illegal, she assumed that people would be outraged by this memo, people around her. She said that, she told me that when she received the memo, she felt sick and had to immediately kind of leave her desk. And she felt that, that she was being asked to help fix the vote in the Security Council. And people may remember, or may, may or may not remember, that at the time, all the talk was of Bush and Blair attempting to get a second United Nations resolution to authorise war in Iraq that was seen to be the route to war. Only with this second resolution would they, would they go to war. So to Catherine, this very much looked like fixing that vote. It looked like a, an undermining of the democratic processes of the United Nations. So she, she assumed that there would be a kind of rush of outrage within GCHQ about this and that her and her colleagues would all be running about and going to management and saying, how can this happen? Uh, in fact, no one said anything at all. They just kind of got on with it. There was a normalisation of it. It was just felt that, well, this is, this is kind of what we do. We work hand in hand with the Americans and we are allies and so we just basically do what the NSA tells us to do. But she was so appalled that she, um, that she took the memo, she printed it off, and she put it in her pocket and she took it home. At this point, it's a tale of two institutions and the undermining of two institutions from the, the way I look at it. 
certainly the undermining of the, of the, of the democratic processes of the United Nations. But also, GCHQ has a, has a proud history of um, what's called signals intelligence, of code-breaking, that you know, goes back to, at least back to the Second World War. And was this really a, an appropriate way for our proud GCHQ to be behaving, to be uh, simply following orders from the United States to undermine that institution? So as this story goes on, I think it is increasingly the story of institutional collapse. But at the, t- at the time, we were being told that, that what British interests were, if, were not to invade Iraq, were to disarm Saddam Hussein. So what our intelligence services were supposed to be doing was guarding British interests. Now, you might argue, I mean, the government might have argued at the time, that being hand-in-glove with the Americans was, was entirely in the British interest. However, whatever it cost, you know, however difficult it was to do it, but what we were being told as a British public was that we are working hard to verify whether Saddam Hussein really has these weapons of mass destruction, whether he really is a danger to Britain, not America, Britain, and our institutions are supposed to be working to, to further British interests, not American interests. Yeah. The, I mean, the difficulty is, with Catherine's argument about why she felt she had to leak that document, is that there are international agreements that are signed that do lock the NSA and the GCH, and GCHQ into, into a partnership on, on these matters. So it may well be the case, or it is often understood to be the case, that these sorts of orders from the NSA to GCHQ happen all the time. The difficulty is that we as the British public have no way of accessing that because none of these agreements are public. So none of the activity of GCHQ is public. Well, also, she felt that as an insider, she could see that one thing was going on, that, that we were in fact working in very close alliance with the Americans to work towards conflict, whereas we were being told as a British public and the British Parliament were being told that war could be averted if Saddam adhered to what he was being told. So what happened is this. Catherine was appalled by this. She went home. She contacted a friend of hers who'd left GCHQ but was now very heavily involved in the anti-war movement. And this person passed the memo to a journalist or former journalist called Yvonne Ridley. Yvonne Ridley, you may remember, was uh, she was working in Afghanistan when she fell off a donkey that she was riding and was captured by the Taliban. She, she was kept for several months and when she came out she committed herself to reading the Quran and then later converted to Islam was very, very heavily involved in the um, anti-war movement. So um, she was given the, this memo, and uh, she then brought the memo to me uh, when I was working at The Observer. The difficulty was that all this information at the top was cut off. Um, so all we had was this, this bit here, and all the information at the top, all the header, all the identifying information was written, handwritten on the back of this piece of paper. 
So at that stage, I had to say to her, well, what, what is this? It doesn't prove anything at all. It could, you could have typed this up. Doesn't, in what sense is this a leaked memo? So me and my colleagues at the Observer had to go back and kind of prove that this guy, Frank Kozer, existed, that this looked like uh, a genuine document. And in terms of truth-telling, this was extremely important because, <laughs> interesting thinking about um, the way things work now, but one of the first intelligence sources we spoke to said that it looked like a very sophisticated Russian forgery. So we're constantly thinking about, you know, do we publish, do we publish? You know, war's coming soon, war's coming soon, what do we do? Is this real? Does Frank Kozer exist? And in the end, we got quite a lot of experts who said that it, look, it looks like the correct language. could be a sophisticated Russian forgery, but looks like the correct the correct language that would be used. And I had a colleague in New York at the time, a man called Ed Vuliami, who's a very well-respected foreign correspondent. And he just rang the NSA switchboard every day for about three weeks, several times a day, and asked to speak to Frank Kozler. And he just kept going and kept going and kept going. And they would answer and say, no one here of that name. And he'd say, thank you very much. I want to hear of that name. Thank you very much. I want to hear of that name. And then one day he was talking to one of his intelligence sources and just about a completely different story and said, you don't happen to know this guy, Frank Kozer. And this guy said, uh, yeah, yeah, here's his number. Gave him his number. And he rang him up. And Frank Kozer's secretary answered the phone and said, oh, Frank Kozer's office. And uh, Ed said, well, can I speak to Frank? It said, Vuliami from The Observer. And... Uh, the, the secretary said, sorry, who is that? Edward Yami from The Observer. And who do you want to speak to? Frank Kozer. No one here of that name, I'm afraid. So it was a kind of, mm-hmm. a kind of cracking kind of Hollywood moment. But it was enough. It was enough to, for us to know that there was really was this guy, or almost certainly was, someone called Frank Kozer. So we went ahead in um, early March of 2003 and published the story on the front page of The Observer. However, all along, all along, um, there had been some concern about the veracity of this document, to the extent that one of my colleagues kept mentioning the Hitler Diaries. Does people know what the Hitler Diaries are? So, for those who don't, the Sunday Times printed what purported to be Hitler's diaries that turned out to be a forgery, and it's, it, it's you know an editor's worst nightmare that you print what you think is the scoop of the century that in fact turns out to be a fake. So our editor was being warned, well, are you sure this is true? Are you sure this isn't going to turn out to be a fake? Sophisticated Russian forgery, etc. We published, and the story caused a huge stir at the time, particularly in America, and then the Drudge Report noticed that the memo that we had printed, we printed a facsimile of the memo on the front page of The Observer, was full of British English. And so they made the point, well, how could this be, how can this be real if it's in British English? The NSA would never put out a memo in British English, it would be in American English. And at that moment, all of us at the Observer thought that this could be the end of everything, really, that we'd clearly published a fake. Like, I remember sitting in my room in, in North London at a time, getting a call from the editor, absolutely furious, saying, what have you done? It's a fake. We're all going to lose our jobs. This is absolutely terrible. How in you know, 
how are we going to deal with this? So I rushed into work where the because I put the memo in a drawer and uh, it was a sort of terrifying moment when I kind of leant over to look at this memo, opened it up, and sure enough, it was in American English, not British English. And what had happened is that a new foreign desk secretary on her first day at the Observer <laughs> had put the memo through spell check oh. and changed it all to British English. She's a very prominent uh, uh, Daily Mail journalist now. But it's those little things that, you know, we're talking about truth and, you know, we were very much worried about whether this was the real thing or not. It was going very big in America. But then, of course, it was sort of too late in a way because things had tipped the other way in America. And so lots of people in America, particularly on the right, who thought that it was the right thing to go to war, read the Drudge Report, accused us of of fake news, and we got a torrent of abuse as a result. And my favourite was this guy, Jeff Hugger, who um, was a member of the public in America, Middle America. We got this kind of campaign, really amazing campaign. Again, it was sort of early days, I suppose early days of, of the internet in a way. Drudge Report was, you know, very early adopter. And the American right was very good at sort of whipping up campaigns. So there was then a kind of letter-writing campaign to email campaign against the Observer to undermine what we'd done. Um, uh, this is just for your entertainment, really. But this um, this is the first email I got from Jeff. <laughs> hey, Dick, we all know that you're full of shit. You should know that what free people say now about Neville Chamberlain is what they will say about you and your ilk soon. War is coming and coming soon. Bring freedom to Iraq and a real peace in our time. So um, <laughs> it's kind of familiar to us now in the era of Trump. This kind of uh, kind of attitude but you know there you go so I wrote back to Jeff who'd um, who'd said uh, he said Mr Bright you are chicken shit he said and what's more my wife thinks you're chicken shit (laughs) I wrote back and said dear Mr Hugger I'm you know totally sorry you feel this way but you know this is an important story and uh, sorry you and your wife feel this way about me but um, you know please try and read this as a, as a piece of objective journalism. You really took me by surprise by responding. I thought my email was going to a vast internet void. Sorry about the coarse language. <laughs> but I do think that this war is right in every imaginable sense. The left used to be so concerned about human rights, I think they really hate GW, George W. Bush, more than Hussein. As a result, become blind to the plight of the Rockies. Take care! <laughs> I hope this impending conflict will be short. Maybe, you know, it's funny, but... It also, I think, sort of represents a, a kind of interesting fault line in thinking about foreign affairs. And um, you know, this is the this is the populist wave that we're we're witnessing now. I think. Um, also, you know, at the time we didn't know, did we? We didn't know what would happen. We didn't know what would happen with the war. Maybe it was important to remove Saddam, and there would be some sort of democratic domino effect through the Arab world. We just didn't know. That old journalistic kind of hack friend of mine once said that the, actually when, when people write to you angrily as a journalist, all you should do 
is write back, Dear Sir, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> Poor madam. There are other people who felt very differently. Um, sorry about the quality of some of these photographs. But um, this is a man called Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel Ellsberg, um, he was a whistleblower who revealed in the 1970s the preparations for war. It's quite interesting in this context. The preparations for war in Vietnam that were being made in America. He leaked it towards the end of the Vietnam War as one of the reasons that the Vietnam War came to an end. Uh, but he revealed that the preparations for war in, in Vietnam were very, very long coming. So not dissimilar to what, what happened in Iraq, in fact, that what the American public were being told was not actually what was really going on, that it wasn't simply uh, a question of communist aggression. It was long in the preparation. And the Pentagon Papers, which he published, were vast amounts of documents about exactly how sophisticated this preparation was. But that was after the event. The point that he made about Catherine Gunn's leak was this. He felt it was the most important and courageous leak I have ever seen. No one else, including myself, and it has to be said, including uh, the WikiLeaks leaks, the, you know, the, the more recent leaks we've seen, they tend to be after the event. No one else, including myself, has ever done what Gunn did, tell secret truths at personal risk before an imminent war, in time possibly to avert it. And I think it's still, it's still the only example of someone doing that, of leaking an ongoing operation to try, to try and stop it. This didn't make her very popular. So, what happens next is we know what they've been preparing, and what they were preparing for was this, which was Colin Powell's address to the United Nations on the 5th of February 2003. My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. I will cite some examples. And the issue before us is not how much time we are willing to give the inspectors to be frustrated by Iraqi obstruction, but how much longer are we willing to put up with Iraq's non-compliance before we, as a council, we, as the United Nations, say, enough, enough. The gravity of this moment is matched by the gravity of the threat that Iraq's weapons of mass destruction pose to the world. We now know that he was deeply uncomfortable with the information that he was being provided with, in fact, um, and the way that it was continually being cracked up. Uh, he was unsure, even as he was making a speech, that, you know, of the veracity of the information he was being. I'm, at this point, I'm still, even now, I'm, st still, I'm still kind of prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think he's had terrible regrets since. I think there was a there was a huge pressure on the American intelligence community to provide the information that would prove the case for war. They, they were very cowardly in the way that they presented that. And he was the recipient of that bad intelligence. Um, and then he was, he was made to do what he was made to do. It was his job to do the presentation of that intelligence, which he was very uncomfortable with. I think he's 
I think he's kind of a broken man as a result. What we now know is this is where this is where this is where it kind of gets interesting how how history the the, the layers of journalistic discovery and the layers of historical discovery start to paint a fuller picture. The Manning Memo um, it was a note that was provided by Sir David Manning, the Chief Foreign Policy Advisor to Tony Blair. Um, now it's very hard to find a photograph of him. He lives in the shadows, does David Manning. But a very, very bad quality. Low res photograph of him. He is this man here, sitting next to Jack Straw. Um, and um, the fascinating thing about the Manning Memo is that it was written on Friday the 31st of January 2003, which was, as we remember, the same time as the, as the COSA Memo. So the COSA Memo was sent out at midnight... Tony Blair and so Tony Blair is in Washington talking to George Bush and David Manning is in the meeting with Tony Blair and what happens in that meeting so there's the cousin I sent out at midnight Bush and Blair meet in the Oval Office for two hours to discuss options They do that. They set a date for war of the 10th of March. So that's decided in that meeting. Meanwhile, of course, we're being told that war is still not inevitable. But this is just a sort of, you know, if we're going to go to war, this is when we're going to go to war. They decide that as well. That they will go for war even if WMD is not found. So, although Catherine doesn't know that this is going on, her instinct is right that in fact what she was seeing was a push towards war that the British public was not being told about this memo doesn't come out until years later by the way I mean, this, is, this, is, this memo is leaked years later this is why they're pressing for the second resolution and Blair so Manning who is Blair's advisor so he's, you know, he's writing a neutral note here that they would still press for this second United Nations resolution to authorise war, as this would give us international cover. So again, is it legitimate? Is it legitimate for Catherine, as an employee of GCHQ, to be pressing the the vote at the UN to gain international cover for this conflict? I'm not so sure. And Bush is noted again by Manning as saying the United States would put its full weight behind efforts to get the desired resolution and would twist <coughs> arms and even threaten. So again, this suggests that Catherine's suspicion about what that memo was really saying was possibly correct. That she that, that really what it was saying was we need to find information about these countries to fix the vote to to go to war. Bush knew that Blair needed a second resolution as cover, in particular with the British public and with the British Parliament, to go to war. So he was prepared to do anything to get that second resolution. 
And it was felt necessary at the time. As we know, in the end, it didn't come. But as we know from here, that it was already being decided, perhaps, that they felt that it wouldn't be, that they might have to go around it. And on the very same day, the State Department, which is you know, the Secretary of State, Colin Powell's department, sent a note to Powell saying that 38 allegations in his presentation were weak or unsubstantiated. So, thanks. <laughs> made me do that, but the next episode. So, people know who this is? The Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, at the time. Um, Sorry, there can be a number of pictures of sort of middle-aged men with in suits with glasses in this presentation. White middle-aged men. White middle-aged men. Sorry, I don't have the glasses. I do. Have um, so now you're in a position where we know that there's been an agreement in Washington that confirms what. Catherine suspected and we at the observer we as the British public the British Parliament doesn't know this is happening but there is a fear that if you if you don't go down the UN route that this will be uh, an illegal war and therefore uh, in particular the British army and the British generals will be at risk of being accused of war crimes if if they go ahead and fight so what then happens is there's another Strand, we're now talking about another institution, the legal institutions of Britain. Uh, on the 11th of February 2003, this man, Lord Goldsmith, not an expert in international law, by the way, a commercial lawyer, personal friend of Tony Blair's, um, he meets with his American counterpart, and when he arrives in Washington, five US administration lawyers, all of whom believe that uh, Saddam is in breach of, of UN resolutions and that there should be a war. Um, and they essentially get him in a room and rough him up. Um, I mean, not literally, but they it's just him and these six American lawyers browbeating him, him who's not an expert on international law, to give the authorisation to go to war. But he's still unconvinced. He comes back to the UK and he still says, I do not think we can legally go to war without authorisation from the United Nations. 24th of February, the second resolution to go to war is proposed within the United Nations. And then on the 2nd of March, we publish our story about the compromising of the United Nations. Again, we don't know that this is going on. But around this time, Goldsmith's advice is still equivocal. He's still not prepared to say that war is... Yeah? And then the thing that kind of tips it over the edge is, so we hit the deadline, right? We know, we now know that this is when they wanted to go to war. Admiral Boyce, who was the uh, chief of defence staff at the time, so the man in charge of the army, goes to... Goldsmith and Blair, and says, I need a line on a piece of paper signed by both of you 
saying that if we go to war now, I am not going to be hauled up in front of the um, International Criminal Court for war crimes. I need that, and I need, my soldiers need that. 17th of March, he gets his legal cover from Goldsmith. Goldsmith changes his mind. And 17th of March, Blair announces that war will be legal without a second resolution. So, so we're desperately trying to get the story out there, the story out there, but then a bigger story comes along. <laughs> um, and the war happens. This happens. Have regime change, you know. Stands toppled. And um, I still think that, well, look, you know, got a, got a victory. But it's a very ambiguous victory. What, what I'm trying to demonstrate today is that we, we weren't being told the whole truth um, for whatever reason. Uh, and I just want you to sort of really ask yourselves questions about the, the nature of whistleblowing and the importance of, uh, or otherwise, of, of getting these sorts of leaks into the public domain. Um, and I just really wanted to emphasise, just in this next section, um, just how quickly events spiralled. Um, that it was a very, very quick rush to war. It was a very quick war. Um, and then when the war was concluded, uh, towards the end of April in that year, things started to unravel really quite quickly. Um, you know, you'll be familiar with the BBC journalist, Andrew Gilligan, and uh, his, as it turned out to be, his source, Dr David Kelly, who worked within the military intelligence establishment. Um, it's a terrible, terrible, tragic story when we were talking about at the beginning about uh, protecting your sources. I think to this day, Andrew just feels a terrible sense of responsibility for what happened to Dr. David Kelly. Um, and let's just remind ourselves of what happened. So, 29th of May, Andrew Gilligan reports on the Today programme that the 45 minute claim that was included in the dossier from the previous September about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction was inserted by the government, although they knew it to be untrue. It's still a contentious point. Um, the Hutton inquiry decided that Gilligan was wrong. Um, Andrew still asserts that, still stands by that claim. And the Foreign Affairs Select Committee had an initial inquiry into what had happened, and David Kelly, at that time not, in, not identified as Andrew Gilligan's source, um, appeared before the committee on the 15th of July. But he felt that he'd given away a huge amount of information in the Select Committee that essentially identified him as, as Gilligan's source. And two days later, he killed himself. And just for clarity, I do think he killed himself. Um, 
And that then led, I mean, this is, you know, all in the course of two, so the, the Iraq war, I mean, it's something I had to remind myself of. The Iraq war happened beginning of 2003. By August, you've already got the Hutton Inquiry. It's just an incredible um, chain of events. And how our story fits into this is that after a long wait, long, long wait, Catherine Gunn is finally charged under the Official Secrets Act. Charged by the British government? By the British, uh, the way it works, by the I police. Mean, by, yeah. by British law? Yes. British law. For breaching, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, she clearly... But technically she betrayed... Uh, yeah. Well, she did, didn't she? <laughs> I mean, this guy, <laughs> she, she, she took a very, very highly secret document and leaked it to the press. I mean, she's... I mean, you know, whatever you think, I mean, in law, she's guilty. She, she breached the Official Secrets Act, right? But then she'd been sent memos about not being asked to do anything illegal as well. Yeah, well, there's a difference between breaking the law and, and a moral decision, isn't there? So... At what point was it revealed that she was the one that leaked Because I assume you obviously would have protected your source. Yeah, she um, she admitted it within days. To her supervisors? Yeah. So she, she was, she immediately was, so everybody who received that memo was questioned. She initially denied it and then she admitted it. We at that point weren't in contact with her. I didn't know who'd leaked this memo to me. I had no idea. Or indeed, I mean... <laughs> To be really awful and brutal about it, I was really relieved when she was named because it proved that it was true. So all my doubts about whether this was a sophisticated Russian forgery or, a, you know, as soon as she'd been arrested for breach of the Official Secrets Act, that meant that it was real. But uh, she wasn't my source in the sense of being someone that I knew and that we could protect as a newspaper or throw our arms around or move or... She just immediately admitted it. She was immediately arrested. So if, how does it normally work? How would you normally, like, in, if she had been your source, what would you have done? Well, I couldn't possibly tell you that. Okay. No, but no, I mean, there, there are ways. You, you almost never can entirely protect your source, but you do everything in your power to do so. So, you know, you make sure that the, you try, you make sure that any communications you have don't happen over email, that you, you meet in public places, but, you know, there are all sorts of techniques you might use to protect your connections with someone, but um, it's, it is very difficult to, to absolutely guarantee that you'll protect your source. What you can say is that I will, I will go to court to stand up for you. Yeah, you know. yeah and if, if, the, if the authorities come to you, they didn't in this case actually, but if the, if the, if the authorities had come to the observer and said, we want all your emails, all your communications with Catherine Gunn, and we didn't have them, but I mean, if they'd have then it would be uh, journalistic ethics suggests that you don't do that. You don't cooperate with the police. You know, the, the onus is on you to protect your source. So the balance is always in favour of protecting the source. So let me just take you through to what, to what happened next. So what, what do you do? What do you do? What did, what did Catherine do? How could she possibly fight this charge of um, breach of this Official Secrets Act? There is no def- there's no defence, there's no public interest defence, and also she'd admitted it. So, on the face of it, she is 
guilty and facing a long prison sentence. But what happened is that um, her lawyers, so Shami Chakrabarti was then the head of Liberty, um, and the, her barrister was a man called Ben Emerson. They came up with this ingenious, ingenious defence. What they said is that she had no choice. She had to do it. Because she genuinely believed that it was a case of um, the, the imminent loss of human life. was That there was a risk of the imminent loss of human life. Uh, and that by leaking the document, she genuinely believed that she could stop Iraqi and British lives being lost. I mean, having spoken to her since, I mean, I know she, she did genuinely believe that. She was, she was so appalled by what she saw in that memo that she thought that as soon as it was, it was published, the British public politicians would also be so appalled that she would, you know, that there'd be a kind of popular uprising and the war would be stopped. I mean, I also happen to know that when the story was published, Alistair Campbell, who's Tony Blair's main press advisor, he also thought that it would be impossible to go to war as a result of what she'd done. Um, as it happened, of course, they just held their breath and carried on regardless. So how did they, how did they come up with this defensive necessity? It was made possible by this man, who I'm sure people in this room probably don't remember. But much earlier, in 1997, this man, David Shaley, who was an MI5 officer, uh, leaked a whole <coughs> slew of documents about what was going on within, within MI5, including an assassination attempt on, on Gaddafi. Um, and he was forced into exile, ended up in prison in France eventually put on trial in, in Britain. And, um, so he failed in his attempt to, to sort of fight the official serious act. But what he did do in a, on appeal was establish the defence of necessity. So he established in the House of Lords at the time, what's the Supreme, the Supreme Court now, that it is possible to mount a defence against the Official Secrets Act if you say that you were acting to, to save the imminent loss of human life. And he tried to use it in his case and failed, but managed to establish the case in English law. That's important. I mean, he's suddenly talking about source protection. He was another source of... <coughs> what then happened was that um, these two guys... So Juan Gabriel Valdez, who was the Chilean ambassador to the UN, and Adolfo Aguiar Zinza, uh, who's the Mexican ambassador to the, to, to the UN, um, confirmed that... Uh, well, confirmed that they were spied on, confirmed that they were appalled by the way America had behaved, um, and also um, believed that they had uh, a plan to delay the war that was scuppered by America's 
insistence on, on going to war. And in fact, one of the reasons that um, their kind of peace plan or extension of the time that the weapons inspectors were, um, uh, were in Iraq, one of the reasons that, that uh, this was stopped was precisely the operation that COSA carried out on them. On the 28th of November 2003, Catherine Garn submitted her defence of necessity. She said, I'm not guilty, and I've admitted I did this. Uh, I took a top-secret document and I leaked it to the press, but I'm not guilty because I did it to save the imminent loss of human life. I mean, it's a huge gamble. As it time gathers towards the trial is set for February 2004 and her lawyers, so Chakrabarti and Ben Emerson decide to demand the Attorney General's legal advice and not only his legal advice but all his legal advice over time to the, to the Prime Minister and on the 26th of February 2004 and the steps of the Old Bailey we're all there waiting for the trial to go ahead and case is dropped so that leaves us with a few questions. Who authorised the operation in the first place? Again, we still don't know, because it wasn't part of any inquiry. This, well, when I happen to believe, Catherine certainly believed, which was a, a huge undermining of, of British sovereignty. Who authorised it? Was it Jack Straw, the Foreign Secretary? Was it Tony Blair himself? Or neither? I mean, was it just something that kind of just happens all the time, that the Americans can just ask our spies to do stuff on their behalf. We don't know. I mean, we should know. I mean, we should, we should know. Why was the case dropped? Now, this is very much an untold story. This is a man called Ken McDonald, who's often held up as a great champion of uh, liberty, liberal Democrat peer now in the House of Lords. He was then the Director of Public Prosecutions. Ultimately, his decision to drop the case against Catherine Gunn. He's never talked about it. He's never explained why it was dropped. Or, indeed, why he proceeded against her for so long. I mean, you imagine you've got this woman, she's, she's arrested. She's not told what's going to happen for eight, nine months. They then prosecute her, and then they drop it. And there's never been any explanation. The, you know, was she being made an example of? Was it just the... Was she being toyed with? Was it just, you know, let's teach this all a lesson that we always intended just to drop the case? He has to, to authorise every prosecution. In the so don't they have any obligation to make public explanation? Uh, they they uh, made a statement to Parliament, um, but it was an entirely circular statement. The statement to Parliament simply said... Um, we, because what the director of public prosecution, sorry, the director of public prosecutions has to judge is whether this case has a likely chance of success, um, and it was decided that they were. What, what he said was, we could put up no def, uh, no um, argument against the defence of necessity. So he essentially admitted that she did act to stop the imminent loss of human life. You have to also judge when you're the director of public prosecutions whether a prosecution is in the public interest. So he was also he could legitimately decide, well, Tony Blair in 
could be called as a witness. Jack Straw could be called as a witness. The military could be called as witnesses. Do I really want to put, effectively put all these people on trial? In? And if she's right, then the whole it means war the war's is, wrong, doesn't yeah. it? So, so he had to draw. Sorry? It goes back to being an illegal war. Well, that, the, the question is certainly raised, isn't it? Yeah. What I now think, having looked at I mean, this has become an obsession of mine, um, <laughs> as you can tell, um, because there are so many unanswered questions still about this case. Catherine did what she did. She didn't stop the war. She felt she did the right thing. She now lives in Turkey. But I think this is... I mean, the Iraq war itself, but th- this process has undermined the United Nations. It undermined diplomacy, UK Parliament, judiciary, and I think the full story of how much this undermined the judiciary has not been told. I still think that well, Ken McDonald has a lot of questions to answer. The media it was very working on the Observer. One thing I haven't told you is the Observer was pro-war paper. We argued for the war, and hugely to the credit of the editor at the time to run a story that was so anti-war, but. The media were hoodwinked. You know, there's very little genuine sceptical journalism on both sides of the Atlantic, actually. I mean, this is, this, is why, this is why I think it really matters, this story and the wider story of the Iraq war, is that the poison is the poison that it fed into all these institutions.